Welcome to Season 2 of Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. It's raining here in Los Angeles, Atmospheric River Part 2, so I apologize for the sounds of rain, wind, and possible landslides in the recording of this episode. The last four episodes have gone together in pairs, Heart of Midnight with Vertigo and Scarlet Street with Melrose Place, or more specifically, Joan Bennett's character in Scarlet Street, Kitty March, and Laura Layton's character in Melrose Place, Sidney Andrews. For my fifth episode of season two, I will be doing a standalone topic, Patricia Arquette as Alabama Worley in the 1993 film True Romance. According to lore, True Romance and Natural Born Killers were originally one film. Thankfully, it was split into two distinct stories, and Alabama Worley had a chance to enter into the cultural ether. She is a widely loved and influential character for a relatively undervalued cult film. I saw True Romance for the first time on television as a child. My impressions of it on my first viewing are strong even now, decades after my first time seeing the film. Alabama's image hit me hard. I wasn't the only one who had this experience with her character, as evidenced by TV shows like Euphoria's repeated references to her. Alabama is an icon for young women. The type embodied by Arquette's Alabama is the trashy whore with a candied heart and the taste of peaches in her kisses. She's the trailer park beauty with blonde hair and a halter dress, worn with a bra, a detail that describes her character in full, just as smeared red lipstick and patent leather turquoise slingback pumps do. Alabama is the height of girlish glee and sex. She reminds me of the scent of a cheap knockoff Terry Mugler bottle of Angel Perfume bought in a Las Vegas gas station parking lot. The specificity of that reference point may be lost on some, but for those of you who know, you know. True Romance was written by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery, but directed by Tony Scott. Christian Slater stars as Clarence Worley, the comic book store employee with a deep-seated Elvis obsession and a wisteria-colored 1969 Cadillac Eldorado convertible. This color of Cadillac was only available by special order that year. I know this because I had the same car, though mine was not a convertible and it died about 20 minutes outside of Oakland almost 20 years ago. Clarence meets Alabama, played by Patricia Arquette, at a triple feature kung fu movie on his birthday. Bama, as she is affectionately referred to by Clarence throughout the film, sits right next to him, haphazardly spilling her popcorn on him and snaring his heart in the process. The two have pie at a diner after the movies, fall in love, and get married. Alabama was a call girl before her overnight romance with Clarence, her third customer, which we find out in one of the film's most moving speeches. More on that to come. Clarence kills her pimp, Drexel, played brilliantly by Gary Oldman, when he goes to pick up her things. In this errand and subsequent bloodbath, Clarence mistakenly takes a suitcase full of cocaine instead of Alabama's things. And just like that, 
the two are off on a wildly romantic adventure that lands them in the dream factory of Los Angeles, doing a drug deal with a big-time director and being hunted down by the mob and the freewheeling LAPD who fashions themselves after the mob. Bama gets beat up in one of the best injury-of-a-woman's-face scenes since The Long Goodbye by way of the big heat. The deal goes down as planned, and a three-way shootout ensues between the director and cocaine buyer Lee Donowitz, played by Saul Rubenbeck, private security, the cops, and the mob. Clarence gets shot, Alabama gets the cash, and her lover to Cancun, a previously decided upon destination because it sounds like a movie. Clarence and Alabama go to Cancun. This film is packed with brilliant actors playing memorable characters. I want to say up front that my focus is Alabama, but I didn't fail to notice the powerhouse she is surrounded by. Clarence's father, Clifford Worley, is played by Dennis Hopper. He is murdered by Vincenzo, a mob boss henchman, played by Christopher Walken. Val Kilmer plays Clarence's hallucination version of Elvis Presley. James Gandolfini plays the hitman Virgil, who fucks up Alabama's face. Brad Pitt plays Floyd, arguably one of his best roles. The roommate of Dick Ritchie, played by Michael Rapaport, Clarence's childhood friend who lives in L.A. Samuel L. Jackson has a cameo as Big Don, and Chris Penn plays LAPD detective Nikki Dimes. Let's talk about the style icon status of Patricia Arquette's Alabama Worley. Like Sharon Stone's portrayal of Ginger in Casino, the culture has latched on to the look of these women, forgetting that the look is memorable because it denotes something important about women, specifically a type of woman and her particular power source. With Alabama, this has most recently been revisited in the HBO show Euphoria about drug-addled teens. This generation's kids with more glitter and in a longer-form medium. Sydney Sweeney's character Cassie Howard is the best friend of Maddie Perez, played by Alexa Demi. Cassie falls for Maddie's longtime boyfriend, Nate Jacobs. And like a girl who believes in love more than life, She throws away her friendship and herself in service of a romance that falls short of being true. But before Cassie's storyline cements her as the resident whore of the show, she is mistreated, used, and tossed about like an oversexed blow-up doll. Her allegiance to love, a.k.a. Alabama, is evidenced by her Halloween costume, where she plays a perfect Mrs. Worley. In a world where she is the side piece, not the wife, Cassie embodies the sugary sweet call girl with an earnestness that is seldom seen by teens. I will link to pictures of Sydney Sweeney as Cassie as Alabama on the podcast's Instagram page. She doesn't get the happy ending Alabama does, but she sure as fuck deserved one. The costume designer who created the iconography of Clarence in Alabama is Susan Becker. She also costumed The Lost Boys, the 1991 remake of Father of the Bride, and St. Elmo's Fire, among many others. She recently did an interview for Dazed Magazine about the look of this film, 
This is 30 years later. There was also a 2016 Vogue article about the relevance of the costume design of true romance. It fucking matters. Let's dig into why. First off, Alabama is dressed nonchalantly trashy. What I mean by that is a bra with a halter dress, smeared lipstick, and flipped out blonde bangs. It's the lost art of I don't give a fuck cuteness that today's contouring and overthought coolness has killed. It is actually cool, actually cute, actually sexy, not cosplaying or content creating it. Alabama's red and turquoise combinations paired with animal prints later become Versace's calling card. Who doesn't remember the zebra print red and turquoise combinations that were the height of the resort wear layouts of Vogue in 1998? Well, that wouldn't be a fond memory if it weren't for the $2 hooker cow print skirt that Clarence lifted up to fuck Alabama in a roadside phone booth in True Romance. We have Susan Becker to thank for that. The first scene I'm going to break down is post-movie theater meeting, but pre-sex, the diner scene. For those of you who have had diner first dates, those out there who believe wholeheartedly in love Americana style, the young hearts that keep a suitcase in their trunk and a gun in their glove box, this is for you. The two young, soon-to-be lovers share a piece of pie over coffee. Alabama says nothing about herself, but gives everything. She is wearing a halter dress, a red slutty number with a leopard print bra under it, stockings, turquoise boots, a pale pink box purse, and a leopard print faux fur coat. Her lips are red, her eyes are mascaraed, but not overwrought with liquid liners or contouring. Makeup that is allowed to wear off denotes varying states of undress that are a key element of sex appeal. Her blonde bob hair with overgrown bangs is flipped out in a 90s does disco style that is manicured and undone all at the same time. Perfection during wooing leaves no room for dirt, sex, and most importantly, love. It's difficult to articulate Alabama's, and by extension Patricia Arquette's, charm. It's somewhere close to a fairy princess that has fallen from her tower to earth and landed near a pack of Chesterfields, a cubic zirconia wedding band, and a hamburger stand in Hollywood. The only one for her is Christian Slater's depiction of a Midwesterner who drives a Cadillac, talks to Elvis, and literally kills for her love. If she is the dream, he is the one that prevents it from being dashed by reality. That's a tall order, but it happened. In the one place it could. The land of dreams. Hollywood, California. After the couple devours cherry pie in a burgundy-boothed diner, they go to Clarence's place of employment, After Hours, a comic book shop. It's there that the act Alabama is putting on shifts from paid-for prostitute to placating blonde. You can see her feigning interest in a first-edition Superman comic. Or was it Spider-Man? I don't remember, and I'm certain she doesn't either. Her interest is an act, but the motivation changes from false to true. I don't have to explain this to women. 
But for the men listening, women often make you feel like they care about your interests because we love you and are kind at heart. I know it's hard to relate to since men rarely do this for women, or at least less convincingly. But it is a big part of a woman's romantic career. When they leave the comic book shop, it's to make love at Clarence's billboard-adjacent apartment. There, with an Elvis statue in the background, they lap at each other's mouths in a signature Alabama and Clarence kiss, lit by the dim blue haze of new love. Post-lovemaking, Alabama goes out the fire escape onto a nearby billboard to smoke a cigarette. She is wrapped up in Clarence's blanket like a babushka, crying with little to no makeup left on her face. Patricia Arquette has the kind of emotionally moving beauty that Alicia Silverstone does. It emanates something beyond beauty, most certainly something not painted on or acted out. It just is. Alabama begins to explain to Clarence, who has followed her out onto the billboard ledge, that she was hired to meet him in that movie theater earlier in the night. Clarence asks if she is a theater checker. She clarifies that she is a call girl. Clarence says, You're a whore? Alabama says, No, I'm a call girl and there's a difference, you know. She begins to raise her voice and continues, Stop being so fucking calm about all this. Go look in your house. There's a note on your TV, and all it says is Dear Clarence, because I couldn't write anymore. So I just said, Alabama, come clean and just tell him what's what. And if he tells you to go back to Drexel and fuck yourself, then go back to Drexel and fuck yourself. Clarence interrupts. Drexel, what's a Drexel? Alabama says, Please shut up. I'm trying to come clean, okay? I've been a call girl for exactly four days, and you're my third customer. I want you to know that I am not damaged goods. I am not what they call Florida white trash. I'm a really good person. And when it comes to relationships, I'm 100%, I'm 100% monogamous. Clarence says, you stay with one guy? Exactly. And if I'm with you, then I'm with you. And I don't want anybody else. In the next scene, the two are married. Alabama's billboard speech is important. Not only do her words open the film in dreamy voiceovers set to desolate Detroit cityscapes, but her words propel the story forward ideologically. In the initial voiceover, she proclaims magic to be a real entity that graces her and Clarence's love. In her billboard speech, It's their love that she is articulating a belief in. She lends it the grandeur of God by doing so. Clarence's actions dictate the forward motion of the plot, but Alabama's spark creates a place in the world where they can have a happily ever after as a result of those actions. It's symbiosis from any angle. After Clarence kills Drexel, Alabama's pimp, He comes home to her with hamburgers in hand. She is wearing the night before's red dress with Clarence's blue hoodie over it, in a pitch-perfect, hiding-in-your-boyfriend's-life look. This doesn't just make an excellent look for a runaway call girl, but for any woman who has loved a man and had no choice but to be in his life as opposed to her own as a result of that love. 
But this isn't any love. It's true romance. And Clarence comes home with proof of his affection. The blood of her pimp on him and a suitcase full of uncut cocaine. The fairy dust of a capitalist society. This is a recipe for starting a new life. Their life. No more hiding in his. They make off for California in Clarence's Cadillac. It's between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, I imagine on Interstate 40, that the couple stop at a phone booth to call Clarence's childhood friend, Dick Ritchie, who lives in L.A. Alabama is wearing her most iconic look, the one that typically makes it into media as a reference point. She is wearing a cow print miniskirt, a turquoise belt, matching cowboy boots, and a white, ruffled, off-the-shoulder crop top with turquoise polka dots. She wears this top over a satin and lace turquoise bra. Clarence gets Dick on the phone and pulls Alabama in to make an introduction. He looks at her lustily and pulls up that little cow print skirt and fucks her in the phone booth. It's probably the most American of all movie scenes, and my personal dream. I have already mentioned Clarence's penchant for murdering for love. If you add this on top of that, you get the perfect man. A man who would be nothing without Alabama to act as an object of his devotion. She is the type of woman that makes a man whole because he loves her. It is a miracle that only happens en route to the Hollywood in your heart. Once the couple arrives in L.A., they check into the Safari Motor Inn, intended to be located in Hollywood in the film, but actually located in Burbank. After a trip to Magic Mountain to facilitate a drug deal and some other character introductions, we come to the most remembered of Alabama's scenes the bloody beat-up scene featuring Arquette and Gandolfini. Clarence drops Alabama off at the motel and heads out to get them hamburgers. In this film, hamburgers are a cue for violence. Alabama opens the door to their motel room. The walls of the room are painted a bright coral. There are two parrot portraits made with real feathers and framed in gilded bamboo flanking a large vase of orange gladiolas, baby's breath, and asters. The high impact of the gladiolas, which is a cheap, tall, tropical adjacent flower, paired with the delicate filler flower, asters, and the trash flower, baby's breath, is perfect for the space and the love that inhabits it. Alabama is wearing her turquoise bra and a sheer peasant blouse with embroidery details. She pairs that with pink leopard print capri pants and her pink box purse. Her shoes are sling back, open-toed, turquoise, kitten heel adjacent pumps. This style was prevalent in the late 90s in resort wear lines of design houses like Versace, as I referenced earlier. Tropical trash is one of my favorite looks of the decade. Her mirrored blue glasses and matching plastic earrings top off the syrupy sweet cherry slushy of an outfit. She shuts the door behind her and then sees James Gandolfini's character Virgil sitting on a rattan chair with a shotgun in his lap. He says, hi. Alabama slings her box bag over her shoulder casually and says, Hi, 
and giggles. He says, that's a very nice outfit. She replies, this, I got this in Las Vegas, Nevada. He says, Alabama, where's our Coke? Where's Clarence? And when is he coming back? She says, I'm sorry, I think you have the wrong room. My name is Sadie. We don't have any Coke, but there's a Pepsi machine down the hall. I don't know anybody named Clarence, but perhaps my husband does. You can ask him because he'll be home in a minute. He plays football. He's just at practice. I love the detail of her fake name. I don't know if it was intended, but I can't help but think of Sexy Sadie. Not the Beatles song, but Susan Atkins, the Manson family killer, who was present at the Tate murders and who was known as Sexy Sadie. Her role in eight of the Manson murders, including the first, the murder of Gary Hinman in Topanga, makes her one of the most notorious female serial killers of the last hundred years. Using her name with a wink and a nod and a giggle warns Virgil that women can kill and enjoy it. Virgil gets up and asks for her hand. She complies. He says, you are unbelievably cute. He lifts up her sunglasses and says, what a face. He strokes her cheek. Her eyes are full of fear. He makes her turn around for him. After she completes her twirl, he punches her in the jaw, knocking her to the ground. Meanwhile, Clarence is singing in his Cadillac in the California sun, blissfully unaware of what is happening to his wife, a violence that she endures because of his naivety and arrogance. Bama lies bloody on the floor. Virgil turns her over and says, That hurts, don't it? Get on your feet, sweetie. You ain't hurt that bad. He asks her again where the Coke and Clarence are. He punches her in the stomach, hard, knocking her back and leaving her gasping for breath. She lays on the ground, blood pouring from her nose and mouth, heart-shaped earrings swept back from the fall. This shot is a close-up of her face. It's erotic in a torture porn kind of way. The term torture porn refers directly to porn that depicts torture, but it can also reference a broader media trope of violence, sexual or otherwise, that has the effect of getting the audience off. In this case, I am referencing the latter. I am not of the camp that thinks violence against women depicted in film is always exploitative, or more accurately, I think exploitation serves an important purpose. It shows women being injured or assaulted in a way that is accurate to my experience of being a woman. But it is important to acknowledge that this type of depiction can perpetuate and satiate a desire to harm women. Virgil throws Alabama's whole body against the entryway table, knocking the vase of flowers to the ground with her bloody and broken body. He yanks her up by her neck, forcing her to face her reflection in the mirror, and says, Look at yourself. Take a good look. Do you think your boyfriend will go for this shit? If you do, you're fucking stupid, you know that? He grips her by her hair, slams her head hard against the glass, and says, You're a very pretty girl, Alabama, but you ain't gonna be very pretty for very long. He asks again where the coke is. 
She flips him off and laughs. He knocks her out with a single hard punch. Cut to Clarence at the hamburger stand, laughing about an Elvis fan in a magazine. He says, It looks like she fell off the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. This is the reference point that grounds the film in neo-noir Americana. A woman's face being destroyed by a gangster is a theme that comes up over and over and over again in film noir. The difference, if there is or even needs to be a difference, is that Alabama is destroyed for love, not by love, as the femme fatale usually is. Gloria Graham's hot coffee burn in the big heat is done by her lover in retaliation for her flirting with another man. She didn't do anything wrong, but her beauty was destroyed for overstepping her role as an object by acting with agency. I love these scenes in noir because they are such a potent portrayal of the egregious violence that accompanies being a woman. It is inescapable. It's Alabama's fate to experience a similar disfigurement, but because this is Hollywood and it is true romance, not just love, her disfigurement is temporary, and Clarence does indeed spend the rest of his life making up for his absence in this moment. The fact that her beauty is not the thing that holds them together, and he still loves her bruised and bloody, is a surprise to everyone but them. Alabama is lying on the ground, bloodied, with her shirt off and her famous turquoise bra exposed. The contents of her purse surround her. Pink sweet and low packets, loose cigarettes, a plastic turquoise wallet, a Swiss army knife with a corkscrew, and a pink toy dinosaur charm attached. Virgil starts his hired killer confessions. This is typical behavior. Men who hurt women always confess their sins to you, you being the injured woman. They feel safe, strong, and capable of vulnerability when you're bleeding on the floor or begging them not to rape you again, at least in my experience. The sweet and low packets that surround Alabama in this motel scene are the most inspirational detail in the film. I kept sweet and low packets in my purse for at least a decade because of this scene. It captures something so indescribably potent about the kind of girl Alabama is and gets at her status as an icon for young women over the last 30 years. She is trashy in the most deliciously saccharine way. Only her blood mixed with pink packets of fake sugar replicates the taste. She sees the reflection of the corkscrew in the mirror. She picks it up as Virgil sees the suitcase full of cocaine hidden under the bed. He pulls out his shotgun to shoot her. She holds up the corkscrew in defense. Virgil, in one of the greatest and grossest movie lines ever, says, Want to play? Is that what you want? Want to play with daddy? Come on, I'll give you one shot, because I like you. Stick it in me, baby. Stick it in daddy. She drives the corkscrew into his white patent leather shoe. He throws her against the wall in response, before pulling the corkscrew out of his foot. Alabama picks up the Elvis statue, which apparently Clarence brought with them, 
and smashes it over Virgil's head. It doesn't deter him, and he continues to come after her. He says, All right, no more Mr. Nice Guy. He throws her through the shower door, shattering it. She lands bloody in the bathtub. She starts laughing and says, You look ridiculous. He grabs her by the hair, but she opens a bottle of shampoo and puts the contents in his eyes. While he is temporarily incapacitated, she picks up the porcelain top of the toilet and smashes him over the head with it in a satisfying and relatable expression of the bottomless pit of rage that we all carry in our hearts. She then gets a lighter and an aerosol can and sets him on fire before shooting him over and over again with his own shotgun. Clarence walks in. He carries her and the suitcase of coke out of the motel. The two end up near the airport on a couch on the side of the road. This is the scene I have the clearest memory of from childhood. I remember seeing him clean her wounds on the side of the road with planes flying over their head and thinking, I can't wait to be in love. Alabama says she wants to go to Cancun because it sounds like a movie. Clarence and Alabama go to Cancun. It does sound like a movie, a love story. The couple go to the drug deal as planned at the now defunct Beverly Ambassador Hotel. Alabama wears a hoodie and loads of makeup in an attempt to hide the evidence of her beating. She completes the look in a pink polka dot dress, Clarence's Elvis sunglasses, and white pearlescent peekaboo toe heels. She glows like the Los Angeles sun in the morning, regardless of her broken and bruised face. During the deal, she sits on the couch riding on an ambassador-branded napkin. You're so cool. A love note for Clarence. By the end of the drug deal, Clarence is shot in the eye, and it's Alabama's turn to take care of him. She grabs the suitcase full of cash in Clarence's arm, walks out of the Beverly Ambassador Hotel, and drives them to Cancun. Alabama ends the film with her last voiceover speech over images of the happy couple on the beach in Mexico. She says, Amid the chaos of that day, when all I could hear was the thunder of gunshots, and all I could smell was the violence in the air, I looked back and I'm amazed that my thoughts were so clear and true, that three words went through my mind endlessly, repeating themselves like a broken record. You're so cool. You're so cool. You're so cool. And sometimes, Clarence asks me what I would have done if he had died, if that bullet had been two inches more to the left. To this, I always smile, as if I'm not going to satisfy him with the response. But I always do. I tell him how I would want to die, that the anguish and the want of death would fade like the stars at dawn, and that things would be much as they are now, perhaps. Except, maybe I wouldn't have named our son Elvis. The last detail about their son being named Elvis is a perfect signifier of their satiated American dream. Their kind of love only happens in Hollywood, but I have spent a lifetime looking for it, with sweet and low packets in my purse. 
Thank you for listening to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. Please like and subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Instagram at Window Dressing Podcast for more content. I'm Madeline Jane Auble.